superstars. Welcome to the Up Your Creative Genius podcast, where you will gain insight and tips to stomp on the accelerator and blast off to transform your business and your life. I'm your host, Patty Dobrovolsky, and if this is your first time tuning in, then strap in because this is serious rocket fuel. Each week, I interview fellow creative geniuses to help you learn how easy it is to up your creative genius in any part of your life. Hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. I have Stacy Stevenson here. And let me just say that by chance, through my wife, Julie, I got to meet her. And then I went to her house for a fundraiser. And she is the consummate rock star. I'm just saying that she is from Texas, that she's been and done so many things in technology and everywhere that it's just amazing. So right now, she's the CEO of Family Equality, which is advancing equality for LGBTQ families, which, yes, thank you very much for that. And before that, she worked for Charles Schwab, and she did all kinds of things as the senior managing director there. She did voice tech and digital and talent, but mostly on top of that, she ran a pride ERG, and she'll tell us what that means, but she wanted to create a safe and inclusive environment for everybody. And so I love that you have done this, and I'm so happy to have you here so we could talk about all of that. Let's get going. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, that's so great. So I just want you to tell us a little bit about you. Tell us your story and just tell us, how did you get to do what you're doing now and what's your past like? You're from Texas. So tell me about what it's like to be in Texas because I haven't been here that long. Mm -hmm. And so to meet you was like, oh, yes, finally, my people. Right. So (laughs) tell me, what's your story? How'd you get to do what you're doing now? Sure. So, yes, I am a native Texan and I'm from South Texas. So about six hours from Dallas, a small town called Robstown, Texas. Yeah. And I, that's where I grew up. And, you know, at some point, I'll kind of fast forward a little bit, about 20 or 21 years old, I decided that I was going to leave the small town. And, you know, that really had a lot of things to do with being a queer person in a yeah. small town, Texas. It had a lot to do with having to drop out of high school after being pulled out of the closet. And what did that oh, do? Oh, wow. Somebody my... outed you. Yeah. Someone outed me, you know, oh, and so wow. to be a teenager who's discovering themselves and finding your first girlfriend and that whole first love thing that happens that we all feel in high school and to be drug out of the closet when you're trying to figure out your own identity and love and what that all means, you know, it was pretty traumatic. And so being pulled out of the closet that led to dropping out of high school, dropping out of high school, obviously led to dead end jobs, lots of evictions, couch surfing, all those sorts of things. Oh my God. I had to make a decision. Yeah. What did I want to do? And was I going to continue to live this life? And yeah. I'll say that I always had big dreams when I was a little girl. Yeah. And for some reason I got away from those, but at about 2021, 20, I was on my friend's couch, sleeping on his couch, and I said, "You know what? I need to do something different. This is not the life that I planned for myself." So I scraped up $70 and jumped in the car and drove to Dallas, Texas, and that's, you know, 20 something years ago. And, you know, really what that part of my life was all about was creating the life that I wanted to live. And so how do I do that as someone who is a GED graduate 
and with maybe one or yeah. two college credits under my belt, right? And when I got to Dallas, I just decided to go in on everything and say, you know what? I want to learn technology. Is it possible to get a job in technology? Yes. And you know what I did, Patty? I'm kind of aging myself. I picked up a Windows 95 manual <laughs> nice. way back then, read it, and then went to a job interview to be a technical support analyst. And I got the job. And that's where my technology job path started was being a technical support analyst. And from there, I decided that I loved leadership and I saw how bad leadership really impacted employees and how great leadership really motivated employees. And I had a lot of examples of bad leaders. And so I started to also get into leadership. And from there, I had my first management position at a huge defense company, Northrop Grumman. And from Northrop Grumman, I went to Sabre, which is another technology company here in the Dallas area. And from Sabre, I went to Charles Schwab. And that was, you know, I'm kind of fast forwarding, but that was like a 20 something year corporate career from technology to supply chain, organizational development. I think I've done it all. But in all of those positions, what was really constant was leadership. And the other thing I'll say is that going back to school, right, and getting my bachelor's degree, getting my MBA, that was all part of the plan and what led me to land and all those jobs. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I think one of the things that I love particularly about that is that you came to this pivot point, right? Where you were on that couch and you said to the person whose house you were in, I got to go do this $70 or not, you know, I'm going to go do it. And that piece takes so much courage. And I think part of what I know from meeting you right? And going to your house and meeting your sons and your wife and just being in that environment with all the people that were supporting family equality, right? Was that I felt like there was a through line in the stories that you told and that other people told about courage, about standing up for yourself and making a way where there wasn't a way before. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I always ask people, what'd you do with the challenges that you came up against? But what challenges did you face in all those corporate environments? Because number one, you're coming in without other people have an education. You Mm -hmm. haven't got one. You're coming in from that swinging and then color your skin. You got that going, you know, and you're gay. So let's just add all of that in there and a woman. So tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about what was challenging in that environment. Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head with the education piece. I think that was my own personal challenge in where I was in these spaces. I was getting interviewed for these positions. I obviously made it to the table to get interviewed and got past the the resumes and all those sorts of things. But this innate feeling of unworthiness was prevalent because, well, you don't have an education. You know, all the other candidates have degrees and they're not an adult trying to get their bachelor's degree. They've done this in college, et cetera. So having to deal with the education piece was really more of a personal issue for me because I was sort of projecting an unworthiness in my presence when I was presenting myself and kind of going to people and going, you know, I know I don't have a bachelor's degree as the, the lead in state as the lead in. in, Yeah. Yeah, And they're not even asking me about it. They're not even asking me about it. So that was my own personal challenge and had And I think I showed up in different ways when I was still dealing with that challenge, when I could have just been my best self and just been in there kicking butt, I had this sort of cloak of unworthiness that I had to deal with. So that was one of the challenges that that was um, really prevalent, especially early in my corporate career. You know, the fact of being a Black woman, that was absolutely a challenge. And, you know, I always tell people, 
I've dealt with bias and discrimination, but I never know if it's because I'm black, because I'm a woman or because I'm queer. I don't know which one it is. So you're trying to balance those things. But I do know, you know, I was told by a manager that he couldn't put me in front of clients because he didn't know if I was going to come out to those clients. And he felt that if I came out to those clients, that it was going to harm his business. So I did deal with things like that. And so what does that cause? Now I'm closeted. Yeah. Now I'm not being my authentic self. Now I'm pretending right. to have a husband. Yes, exactly. At work in order to survive. And yeah. I think the other thing, when you're the only LGBTQ plus person in the room, which happens yeah. a lot, I think then we also just sort of just by default, we start to kind of shell up and close in. We're not being ourselves yeah. and we're not telling the stories of our weekends with our yeah. partners, et cetera. So I dealt with that quite a bit. And, you know, one of the ways I think that I, decided to really combat that is to start leading in employee resource groups. And when I was at Northrop Grumman, that was my first foray into being a part of a pride employee resource group. So we are supporting the employees that are LGBTQ and that they have resources and they have a safe space to come meet every now and then, every now and then to talk about their experiences at work and how do we create the best experience for them at work and a safe space for them at work to exist and do their work. Yeah, I think that an ERG or that employee resource group is so valuable there. And also it's the place where you can be yourself because I think, you know, you can imagine I'm older than you are. So way back when, when I came out, I mean, every single time I went into business Mm -hmm. who I was working for, they would always say, you know, you can't come out there. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be an opportunity for you. And I would just find a way to do it anyway. I would just do it. I didn't care what they said. And, you know, because I realized that if I could be myself in front of those people, they could be themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in some groups, I felt confident enough or I had a deep enough bond where I would share that, right? But often it would just be with two or three people in the room that I was facilitating. I would share Mm -hmm. with them. It wasn't a thing where now you can just be yourself. And even now in some circles, it's still shocking when I say my wife and I, you know, and I make a point of it. I don't know about you, but I make a point Mm -hmm. because I want people to remember, hey, you know, yeah, I have a partner and she's doing great. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. But I think that that it's hard to bring your authentic self when you feel like that there's so much judgment in the world based on not having an experience with someone like you. Yeah, I agree. You know what the other thing is, and I appreciate that because I wish that we had, when you said you were still, you would still do it anyway, even though you were told not to. And I wish that that I had models like that, like you in my career who were doing it. But I think the other thing is also cultural. So as an African-American person whose family is from the South, who grew up Baptist, oh, yeah. and you think about the whole coming out you know, story, not just what happened at school and the way that the yeah. kids responded. How did my family respond yeah. to my coming out? And oh. how many times did the issue of church and God and being a sinner come up? And the messages that I was told as a little girl yeah. about homosexuality lived with me. And I think probably maybe even back then, even Mm -hmm. in the safest places, I think I still would have been hesitant because of those messages that stick with you that you're hearing at home, right? Before you ever leave the nest. Yes. And I think people now, they realize how powerful your words are, or we hope that they do. But 
of course, you know, my parents, when I came out, I was 17 and they were like, my dad went around the side of the house and cried, you know, my mom's and my siblings said, you know, we love you no matter what. But what was true is my parents never told anyone that I was gay until they were in their seventies and towards the end of their life, they said it to one of their friends and their friend said, my son is gay. And they were like, oh, you know, oh, finally. Wow. And, you know, so you think about that. So they could say one thing, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't tell anybody. So that at my mother's funeral, right. And afterwards, the celebration, I was introducing mm-hmm. my wife to them because mm-hmm. they had no idea that I was gay. None. Wow. None at all. And so, you know, they just knew what I'd done and accomplished and all those Mm -hmm. things. You know how it is. Oh, of course. Yeah. Think about what the kind of support system that could have been for your parents. Exactly. Had they said something, right? That's right. And and kind of built that network. But again, we talk about generational differences. That's right. Parents. And I mean, I think it's awesome that in their own way, I guess they supported you. I hope. Yeah, they did. They did. I mean, you know, I found the card. I always tell this story to my wife, Julie, right? You know, you and your wife and Julie and I've been married the same amount of time, Mm -hmm. right? But my mom for years, because I was a serial monogamous, she had Mm -hmm. a card with everybody's name on it. And then there'd be a line through it. And then the next girlfriend's name with their phone number and then a line through it. And then the next one, I found that (laughs) in like a box after she had passed. I was like, Oh Oh, my God. But she, you know, she always gave them everything, Christmas Mm -hmm. presents and was completely embracing. However, that was like a reflection of me. I was like, Oh my God. You know, I'm glad I changed that habit. Right. Exactly. Well, that's fascinating. So now talk a little bit about the role that you're in now, because Mm -hmm. I met your beautiful boys and I think that what you're doing with family equality is amazing. So tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah. So I am, you know, I'm going to back up a little bit. I left corporate America. Right. Yes. And so I, but during the pandemic, but during during the pandemic, right. And And why uh, did you leave during the pandemic? Right. So surprising. If someone would have asked me a couple of, well, geez, how long has this pandemic been around? Like it's been almost three years. So if someone would have asked me in early 2020 or 2019, if I was going to leave corporate America, I would have thought that they were, are you kidding? You're crazy. This is, this Money's is good. Life. I Money's got my good. leadership. Got my leadership position. <laughs> got I'm my like, nice house. <laughs> I got it right. And I'm like, and again, go back to, you know, the, who I was and who I thought I would not be. And now I'm here in corporate America. Like, why would I ever take any of that away? And then during the pandemic, you know, I call it COVID clarity. I think we all had COVID clarity. Definitely. Because we had so much time to think. Still, oh my Lord, we're still having it. So much time to think. Yeah. And, you know, it gave me time to decide if I was really doing good in the world in the way that I wanted to. And if I was really putting forth all those challenges I went through, the coming out of the closet, what happened with my parents, being rejected when we were trying to build our family, which we all get to, all those things. How did I really want to use that in a way to help people? And, you know, I made the decision that it was time to go do something different and it was time to take a risk and it was time to bet on myself. And, you know, you could say I bet on myself, you know, in the past and I think I did, but it's like those bets, I think, have to keep getting bigger. Well, this is a big bet. I mean, this was like now you're stepping into your true self. You know what I'm saying? You're stepping into you're the leader, you're the CEO. So Mm -hmm. that means you're overseeing all of it. 
but you're in your authentic stream. Like there's not a moment that you're not living your full life. Exactly. And that was part of the COVID clarity too of this is, I mean, Charles Schwab is a great company. Yeah, I think you know folks there. Great company, supportive of the LGBTQ plus community and, you know, all sorts of, I think, underrepresentation or underrepresented people. When I was at Schwab, we really were trying to do our best to ensure that we were uplifting those people. Yeah. And then at the same time, was I living my authentic self? And I think to an extent, I thought that I was, I'm leading an ERG. I'm out at work. I'm talking about my wife and my kids and people know who I am and what we do and all those sorts of things. And then at the same time, there's still this authenticity, I think as an LGBTQ plus person that, or again, this cloak of even maybe closetness that we still carry, at least I carry and didn't know I was carrying it. Fast forward to, I decide to apply for family equality. And my wife thinks I'm crazy. She says, <laughs> you love corporate America. This is your thing. This is what you do. She went back. She said, when I met you, you told me that this is what you do. And this is what you will do. And I was kind of, you know, on this career trajectory. Yeah. And so she thought I was crazy. Maybe I thought I was a little bit crazy, but maybe that's great. We sometimes get, I think, a little bit crazier out of our comfort zone. <laughs> but I decided to apply for this job. And, yeah. you know, the and at a CEO level, like you said, and the committee that was responsible for hiring, they had their doubts because I didn't have extensive nonprofit experience that sat on boards. But what is this person going to offer right. that the traditional nonprofit you know, candidate could actually give us? And I had to demonstrate that those years and years of business and leadership that I had had under my belt at Schwab and Sabre and Northrop Grumman were beneficial to the nonprofit world. And not Definitely. That, you know, but you have to demonstrate that. And not only that, I have a lived experience. My wife and I live in Texas. We're a black lesbian couple in Texas raising twin black boys. <laughs> yes. And by the way, we had a very rocky journey with yeah. building our family, including an adoption agency in Texas telling us that they wouldn't work with us, telling ah. us that women were not going to pick us anyway. But by the way, we're not going to work with you because you are a same sex couple, you know, having fertility doctors give us the runaround, you know. So that experience of being rejected when you're trying to build a family, when you're, you make that decision to have a child, which is just a huge decision. Yeah. And then you go forth, because that takes courage too, right? To say, yes. oh my God, I'm going to raise other humans. That's just a whole other level of courage as well. And then you go do that and you take that big step. And then they tell you that you're not good enough and that you can't do it. I felt I could take that live, that hurt, that pain, the experience of being um, in corporate America and take all that and make an effect and an impact in family quality. And thankfully yeah. after a very long, you know, almost six month. <laughs> interview process. Uh, grilling, the grilling, grilling, let the grilling, the grilling begin. Again. One oh, side, God. then the other. <laughs> Lots of grilling. They selected me and I'm thankful and I'm so happy to be at Family Quality. I feel like I am where I am supposed to be. And it's almost yeah. like, what took me so long to get here? Yeah. It took me so long to figure that out. But I think in life, it does take us some time to figure out where we truly belong. We're sometimes oh. living someone else's life. We don't even know it. We're sometimes living someone else's life or someone else, someone else's version of life. And we don't even yeah. know that we're doing it. Yeah, I would agree. I think that, you know, we get impacted by everything around us and what mm-hmm. we form a belief about who we should be and how we should act. And then we live that as if it's yeah. reality. And mm-hmm. just like our personality, we think our personality is real instead of that. It's just one suit we put on and it can change over time. And that, you know, really when you work in the corporate sector, 
I mean, you just wear a certain suit really all the time and you button yourself down in ways that are hard to explain, but Mm -hmm. you can feel it inside. And it reminds me when I was a kid, my mom would dress me up in these little frilly outfits and I would scream, you know, Mm. age three, when I came in the house, put on my real clothes. I need my real clothes. Yes. And that is always how I felt in corporate America, you know, Mm. and now I'm like, whatever, you know, I'm going to wear what I wear and be who I am. And these things will help to create the change. Mm -hmm. So you went from a corporate position to running a nonprofit. So Mm -hmm. what did you have to learn and how did you have to grow in yourself in order to do that? Mm Because those are two different cultures. I know from working at the Gates Foundation, there were three Mm -hmm. cultures. One was people from Microsoft, one was nonprofits, and one were entrepreneurs that had come in. Mm -hmm. So what in your case, what did you have to manage or learn and do? Yeah. Well, I had to learn that one, it is very different. So in terms of resources and finances, you know, you think about the companies that I've worked for, not that you had unlimited resources, but you had a pretty big budget to do what you needed to do. And all you needed to do is go through the the hierarchy or sometimes bureaucracy to get an approval to get it. But the money was there at a nonprofit to be running a nonprofit and to be so cognizant about the dollars. And these are donor dollars. And how are we using those in an impactful way? But yeah. needing to run an organization as efficiently and effective as possible, but not yeah. having the unlimited or you know the you know a big budget to do so. I had yeah. to learn very quickly how do I stay nimble? How do I yeah. work within the confines of our budget? Yeah. But also make something, create something new. And yes. that was a learning curve for me. And I think I'm getting around it of figuring out. I can work this within the budget, but we're going to have to be super creative. And I think what it's done is it's forced me to be even more creative than I would have. Sometimes when you have access to, you know, just a plethora of options and you're not really as creative as you maybe we would be. And I had to get super creative. I think the other thing I had to learn is how to interact with the board members because I've been a board member, but now I'm a CEO (laughs) responsible to the board, exactly and managing all those different board personalities, yeah. managing, you know, who is kind of like skeptical of maybe my being here, who's maybe a champion, how do I kind of bring everybody on board? And, you know, I think the other challenge too, is just to be quite honest, was realizing that I'm the first black leader in the history of family equality. And wow. to be honest, after 42 years of this nonprofit being in existence, wow. And, you know, a while, Patty, I was telling myself, I don't want to make that a thing. That's not a thing, you know, and I think that's a whole conditioning of African-American people, too. We've taught not to rock the boat a lot yeah. when it, yeah. in, as it, in it comes to race. But it's not really about rocking the boat. It's the fact. Yeah. yeah. And there are implications that come along with that. Definitely. And while I went in with eyes wide open, there are also things that I learned along the way that being the first Black leader and how people respond to you and how you have to show up are still very different. And that's something that's a consistent theme, whether I'm in corporate or whether I'm a nonprofit, I'm still a black woman. And the the ways in which I have to show up are very different than some of my peers. So thinking about that, like, yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me that educate, educate the listeners a little bit Mm -hmm. about what that means. You have to show up somewhat differently. So how are you having to course correct or, you know, sort of position yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think it's really about you. We all want to show up competent. Yeah. 
And I think for many of us, sometimes our resume and our background is enough to get people to buy into our vision and who we are. Yeah. Oftentimes for a Black woman and a queer Black woman, we have to work harder at getting people to yeah. believe our merit and that what we are bringing to the table is genuine and not we weren't put in this position just because. I've had people ask me if I was a token because I am the first uh, Black lead of the organization. Oh, wow. So having to really fight that to go, no, 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 no. It's not tokenism. The board did its due diligence. And here's my long resume and with all my wow. accolades and things that I've done in my education. And I belong here. So it's really, it's almost like this constant reaffirming to others and sometimes ourselves that I belong yeah. in this seat yes. Yes. because I've done all this stuff. And my resume is just as great as any of my other peers who may not look like me or, or love like me. So it's a constant reaffirming and navigating and shimmying that you have to do. And thankfully, you know, I have a supportive board, but you know, I have, I'm responsible for, to the board, to donors, to the employees, all of that. And there's implications that, that come along with that, that you have to continue. Yeah, to uh, definitely. And I just <clears throat> think that sounds very tiresome to me. Mm-hmm. That's what, to me, it feels, you know, I was talking to one of my guests was Lonnie Phillips and we were talking about it and she was like, it's exhausting. You know, it can be exhausting that piece of it. And I think, I don't think people can appreciate that if you have Mm -hmm. never lived that experience, how exhausting it really is and how important it is to really note and check your bias that you bring to every conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is no matter who you are in the world, it's an everyday thing. It's it not just one and done, uh, read a book, take a workshop, whatever. You have to really go out in the world and have an experience so yeah. that you know, I mean, it's incredible. And I yeah. just want to say thank you so much for everything that you do in the world. And you, you know, you really are a black leader in Dallas. That's what's true. Like you're recognized as that you've been, I, you know, I did all this back back channel looking at what you'd been up Mm -hmm. to listen to some other podcasts where you were interviewed. And I was like, Oh my God, she's incredible. And you really are, but that's a very different, that's a very different thing to be working Mm -hmm. in corporate America and then be running a nonprofit. You really are accountable to everyone. So Mm -hmm. that's like, that's a lot of shoulder, you know, you got to get those lifts because that's what it is. And I think stakeholder engagement, what you're talking about there, you know, it's really, it's essential. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking, man, you really need a good therapist, you know, like (laughs) you need a therapist when you have have to, oftentimes I tell people (laughs) that my wife is probably tired of being my therapist. But, you know, because that's what happens, right? We get off the call yes. or we come home and, and we're, blah, we go and we talk to our spouse and we lay all this on them. Yeah. But I also will say, I just have to say something about therapy. You know, I'm someone who has what I would call a, a traumatic background. And then at the same time, coming from the African-American community where we don't really embrace a lot of times mental yes. health, I am so on board with people having therapists and I <laughs> fully support it. We need it. We need it. And, I, and that doesn't mean that, you're, that there's anything wrong with you. Yeah. Doesn't mean no. you're crazy or anything. <laughs> yeah. It's just you need an outlet. We all need outlets. Yeah, that's right. You know, I was trained as a <clears throat> drama therapist, so I know all about the drama. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's essential for people to show up 
really in the way that they need to, and then to kind of sort through all the pieces of it. Because where we get in trouble is when we press ourselves down to try to fit or hold back the feelings that we're having instead of saying what's true and Mm. then sorting it out with the other person. And I think that that when you are always having to be on guard, you don't Mm. get the opportunity to do that. You can't just call it as it is. And so part of, I think the, the challenge for all of us in this new era, you know, the pre COVID, you know, now we have an AC. And so now we're in AC. And so in that place, we have to be truly listening to each other Mm -hmm. and then being authentic about what is true for us and know that, you know, you're not always going to say it right. And well, you're going to do the best you can. And that there's Mm -hmm. gotta be a lot of grace for that. A lot of grace. Is AC after COVID? After COVID. Yeah. After COVID. Yeah. After COVID. Like I think pre-COVID and after COVID, because we're not after it. I don't think, but you know, that's the moment when it started. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now when you think about that, so you now have these two beautiful boys, are you having a good time with them? (laughs) Speaking of authenticity, Parenting is the most beautiful and challenging experience that a human can undertake. That's what I will say. And I am having fun with them. I'm also learning from them. And that is so hard because I am taught or we're taught as parents that we are the authority figure. We know best. We know it all. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know it all. Yeah. And how is it that I could actually learn something from these seven-year-olds? And that's begrudgingly, I don't want to learn from them, but I am learning from them. And it's been a really, it's been a stretching experience to me because, you know, I love my parents. You saw the story about my dad during the party that you attended. Love my parents. And at the same time, I don't want to make some of the mistakes that my parents made. So I'm having lots of fun and then also trying to be cognizant of not making the mistakes. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw up. I already know that, but, but fun, fun is the thing that we're trying to implement here at the house because man, Patty, things can be so damn serious sometimes. Oh yeah. I think, and people are, you know, I think there's all the boundary setting piece, right? So the boundaries Mm -hmm. and then the freedom and then, you know, the chaos and you've got twins so they can work you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah they're like with each other they're like they like you know to do the tag team thing you know yeah but you know what we're having fun and what I will say about them is that just what we try to instill in them because they get a lot of this from school why do you have two moms or ill you have two moms you know I told the story at the house party about a teacher who was treating London badly and we found out later it's because he had two moms and what I can say is that you always wonder how is that going to affect your kids and and then you sometimes I think feel a level of guilt because they're having to take the shoulder that burden they're being advocates at seven years old you know and yeah. you and I know what advocacy is and how hard and emotional yes. that is and it's the same and our kids are doing it too yeah that they have embraced the whole having a mama thing a mom and a mommy it's like no problem like what do you mean why are you asking for you know I love my family you know and I love that you know because yeah. you just never know and we're in a we're in a difficult environment Texas it can be a difficult environment from an inclusivity perspective for our community, as I'm sure you know. Yes. And I'm so glad that they see the beauty in their family. Yes. And and they they talk about it. You know, I think that for them, it's like, yeah, no big deal. And I would think 
you know, to me, you know, I was thinking about the things that make me mad. And this, the Mm. thing is, the things that make me mad are the fact that this era that we're living in didn't happen when I was coming out, you know, Mm -hmm. like those things. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) but still in some pockets of the world, it's still the same, you know, things haven't changed. And we live in Texas, you know, and I always read mm-hmm. on Twitter, you know, they have things that happen in Texas there. Mm-hmm. And if you want a good laugh and a good cry, just read yes. what people write. Right. But now when you think about, so I love that you started this whole conversation with talking about this wasn't the vision that you had of your life. So I'm mm-hmm. curious, what do you envision for yourself? Like best case scenario, you know, three years from now, yeah. you know, what do you see yourself doing or being? Mm-hmm. What's that look like? Or when you're yeah. thinking about your trajectory? Sure. Learning to be of service to others. Yeah. And figuring out how do I do that in a really authentic way? Yeah. But at the same time, living the dreams that I have for myself too. And I think that we get to live more of the dreams that we have and we learn that service to others is part of the picture, not just service to ourselves. And if I get very specific, I want a best-selling book. I want a New York Times bestseller book. All right. You know, I spent, you did some of the research and, and I've written, I wrote a story for my time when I was a self-harmer from age 15 to Yes, 30, and it went 35. viral. I guess somewhat, right? Um, yes. But I would love to create a book on that Yes. because people don't know that in the Black community that we are cutting. So yeah. I would love two, three years down the line is to have a book, is to continue to be in the nonprofit space and to grow family quality to the budget that we have to an even larger budget. And the larger budget we have is not just for budget sake. It means that we can serve more families. I want right. to be a part of that change. And then just working with folks like you to make change in Texas. What yeah. do we love to see in three years time, Texas be more like where you and your wife came from in California? In terms of laws and inclusivity and just, you know, kind of progressive thought, I would love to be a part of that change and on a beach somewhere more often too. Yeah, (laughs) that's so true. I just want to, I just want to clarify though, my wife is from the Midwest. So Ah, she came, yeah, she came from Iowa and I came Mm. from California and we met in Colorado. So we've lived in multiple states, but she's not from California. I'm sure she wishes she was living in California somewhere where the sun shines all the time, even better. But, you know, I think that it is the opportunity. I think wherever you have the most challenges, you're placed there because you have this great opportunity to serve. And if you can figure out how do I serve within this environment in such a way that I can help transform the lives of this person and that person. It's not always big change. You know, big change is 3.5% of an area. If you can get 3.5% to come together in a nonviolent way, that's Mm. how change occurs on a massive Mm -hmm. scale. And so we have to just assume that we're part of Texas is 3.5%. And yes. that somewhere in here, we're going to find the rest of that 3.5%. And we're going to do what needs to be done here, which is just shift to what people know in their heart is Absolutely. the right thing, which is love. Which honestly. Is, it's all about love. And some people, I think sometimes want to give up on Texas, like, oh, there's no way we can make change there. I don't believe that. And I'm the kind of person who believes that there's always a way. Yeah you know, to do something to make change. And so I'm, we'll work together. We'll do it. Yeah, we will. Yeah, we will. 
because we're neighbors. So I know it. I know it. I'm coming to your neighborhood to get some bagels in just a few minutes. So, you know, oh, yes, I still yeah. have to try that bagel shop. Oh, yeah. Like, well, you can meet me yet. there after we're done. I'll be over there. Oh, you'll, you'll be, be going to work, though. I'm sure. I'll right be, I'll be do. I have enough back to back meetings. Oh, know, yeah. So well, something I should be dropping them off at your house then since I'm not. <laughs> oh, you know God. what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, do they have great? Like, do they have a, a great everything bagel? I'm a, I love. Oh, yeah, they have. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Oh, it's just everything that you ever loved in a bagel is there. Yeah. Dance bagels. Fantastic. Now, so tell people when you think about, you know, all of the ways in which you have been able to pivot from the time you were on that couch to working in those multiple organizations, what piece of advice would you give to people that are listening who maybe need to make a pivot in some area? who had that hard conversation with themselves during COVID, what would you say? What would be some tips? Yeah. So one of the things I said earlier is betting on yourself. And I think that it's easier said than done, but all of us have these great dreams and these hopes. And sometimes that's all they end up being is just dreams and hopes. I think that you have to bet on yourself, no matter what the naysayers are saying. And when I was on that couch, I had people tell me, why would you ever go to Dallas? You, number one, (laughs) you don't have enough money. Number two, you're not going to make it. Number three, you don't have an education. That's right. And, and whether I'm on the couch or whether I'm at Charles Schwab having this really deep moment of contemplation going, should I leave? And I had voices telling me too, why would you do that? What would you do? So, or why are you doing it? So bet on yourself in don't listen to the naysayers because I think that all of us in our heart know exactly what we truly need. Yes. It's just that we don't believe it. We don't listen to it. Right. We let the we we let the crowd lead us more than I think we let ourselves lead ourselves in our path. So bet on yourself. And I think that this whole notion of you know one of the things I got out of your the session that we had with you the other day, the, the training session, be outrageous. And yeah. I didn't know at the time that I was being outrageous on that couch. I didn't know at that time that I was being outrageous when I decided to leave Charles Schwab. But when you said that the other day, <laughs> I was like, oh, I was being outrageous. And, yeah. you know, and their outrageous is on a spectrum, right? It doesn't have to be something like you just left your job and you don't have another income. Outrageous is on a spectrum, but push yourself, be uncomfortable, do something that's scary and see what happens. And I think that we need to be uh, more outrageous, less fearful and bet on ourselves. I yeah. think that's, that's the key. I love that. I love yeah. that big bet, bet on yourself and be courageous and outrageous. You got to be mm-hmm. outrageous. And that could be as simple as getting your eyebrows waxed. Who knows? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So, and the bets know. keep changing, Patty. I'll say that too. That's right. Maybe you're betting, you know, this has happened when people are, I'm not a big gambler, but I'm sure that if you keep winning, you continue to bet on yourself in even a bigger and bigger way. Keep up in the bets. Keep increasing your bets. Um, That's right. We'd be surprised at what happens. And I'm sure you've done it in your life too. We're so afraid. And then we make that leap in that bet. And maybe it doesn't happen exactly the way we think it's going to happen. But in the end, we end up where we need to be. And I I think that's what... You know, I love messages. Yeah, I love it. And you know, the bigger the bet, the more courage that you build mm. and the more confidence you build to yes. go out and do the next thing and the next thing, because who knew, you know, you were just going in and, and reading a manual and applying for the job and getting it right. Mm-hmm. And then exactly. now look at where you are, you know, and the life you've built for yourself. And 
that's really what it's about. So mm-hmm. I yeah. thank you so much. Thank for you. Being here. This, was, this was amazing. It was so much fun. And I can't wait to see you and have bagels with you Absolutely. at your house. With your I'm wife. craving bagels now. Pat. I know it. I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thank um, you. listeners, just for all of you, just be sure to look in the show notes for how you can follow Stacy and get in on what she's doing and support her in any way you can. And thank you again. Everybody go out, you know, do what you do and up your creative genius. Let's do this. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to DM me on Instagram your feedback or takeaways from today's episode on up your creative genius. Then join me next week for more Rocket Fuel. Remember, you are the superstar of your universe and the world needs what you have to bring. So get busy, get out and up your creative genius. And no matter where you are in the universe, here's some big love from yours truly, Patty Dobrovolsky and the Up Your Creative Genius podcast. That's a wrap.